Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. Today's topic is 2020 crypto taxes. Here to discuss are Shehan Chandrasekhara, a CPA and head of strategy at Cointracker, and Dan Hannum, COO of Zen Ledger. Welcome, Shehan and Dan. Thanks for having us. Just a quick disclaimer before we dive in. While we hope that the show is informative for everyone, this is not financial advice and everyone who has any crypto holdings should seek their own personalized tax advice. Also, we need to make one caveat, which is that this show will primarily be helpful for U.S. taxpayers. All right. So there are some ways to the, some changes to the ways the IRS is handling crypto this year. What are those changes and what does that signify? Yeah, uh, I mean, happy to start with with one of them. I guess we can yeah, go back and yeah, forth th- and a little bit. Yeah, and this is Dan for people listening on audio. Go ahead, Dan. Thanks, Laura. Um, yeah, I think one of the biggest ones that we saw was uh, towards the end of December uh, where the IRS uh, released a new draft uh, for the 1040 question, which is uh, a question that came on uh, for last year, but was on the schedule one and now has moved to the top of the 1040. So a little bit more prominent placing. And then they also- Which is sort of like the front page of your taxes- Absolutely. Yeah. So the schedule Which one is sort of it, like the front page. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So the schedule one is a form that not every American needs to file. But the 1040 is typically a form that, you know, not if not everyone, the majority of, of U.S. based investors will need to file. Now that question's listed as a number, the number one question. And some of the draft guidance that came out, I think, clarifies a few of the issues, um, mainly around if uh, purchasing crypto, you have to check off. Yes. And under the new the new draft, you now have to check off yes under that question if you've purchased crypto, which is a little bit of an interesting um, conundrum in the sense that purchasing crypto um, is not necessarily a taxable event. But I think that's a, a big major change that we've seen to the the newest draft and then to the the movement of the question itself. Shehan, do you want to add to that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so Dan, uh, you're right in the draft, uh, you know, instructions. It, it did say that, you know, if you had purchased crypto, you would still have to check yes. But actually, I checked out the instruction yesterday and they had removed that language. So, uh, yeah, it, it was huh. interesting to me as well. So if you look at the instructions right now, it does not explicitly say that you need to check yes if you purchase crypto. However, if you purchase crypto, I think it will still be recognized under the receive category because it's, it's such a broad question. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, there was a purchase uh, that that bucket, they removed it. 
from the final instructions. Wait, so now the final does not ask you if you purchased crypto? It, it does not explicitly say that you need to check yes if you purchase crypto. Uh, but in the question, you know, did you receive any cryptocurrency? So I assume if you're purchasing something, you're, you're receiving. So just oh. to be safe, I would check yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so what do those moves mean to you that now it's right on the 1040? It's the first question. And they're even asking if you've received crypto, which isn't necessarily a taxable event. Like what do those changes mean to you? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, a lot of people like think that, okay, if I answer this question, I'm going to get audited tomorrow. I mean, that's, that's not the case. Right now, IRS is trying to, you know, kind of get, I guess, a good set of data among, you know, U.S. taxpayers with some type of affiliation with crypto because right now they don't have this data. So by putting that question on the page one, they're going to expose this question and the subject to roughly 150 million taxpayers. And, and you're supposed to answer this question. You've got to say either yes or no. And your answer is going to be tied to your social security number and et cetera. So, um, I guess I, I think what Iris is trying to do is they know that exchangers and everybody has seen tremendous amount of growth because of the recent bull run and the previous bull runs. But the number of returns that they get with crypto has been in, in like, you know, thousands. So it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so that's why I think they're trying to gather the information. Gathering the information doesn't necessarily mean that you got to pay a tax bill. Like, for example, like you said, Laura, if you receive like a cryptocurrency gift or something like that, like there's nothing to report, but you would still check yes. Um, and uh, there's could be other situation. You could be like, you know, as you mentioned, you could be purchasing crypto. And the safe thing to do is to kind of check yes. But again, there's no taxable event. Um, but by answering that question, you, I mean, whether you like it or not, you had to give that information to the IRS. And um, I'm sure that's going to go into some type of database and, are going to run some analysis in the future to, uh, you know, do analysis among, you know, the taxpayers with crypto affiliations, if they're finding everything correctly or not. Okay. Well, all right. So now we know this is, this is important. Um, so it's, Sounds like not everybody who should have been reporting has been in recent years. So we might have some longtime crypto people who are just trying to wrap their heads around this the first time. Um, so what is the main principle that people should keep in mind when it comes to uh, their crypto and taxes? Yeah, I guess, I guess I'll start. Maybe Dan can add to, uh, add to that later. I think uh, a lot of people don't realize that crypto is regulated and it's taxable. Uh, some people, they find out that it's taxable when they first see the question on TurboTax or when their tax practitioner asks them. So that's something to, to know. Like crypto is taxable as a property. If you make any profits, you got to pay capital gains, taxes. And if it's a loss, then, then actually you can write it off and you could even get a refund. So reporting your crypto transaction is not necessarily bad uh, because if the market is down, you can you could actually benefit. Um so yeah, so the IRS first came out with these rules in 2014, pretty much said crypto is rated as property. So from 2014 to 2020, we haven't seen any you know major differences in, in the way that we treat crypto, even though the crypto space has you know grown tremendously, you know, we have DeFi, stable coins, and et cetera. But unfortunately, according to the IRS, all cryptocurrencies should be treated as property. Uh, and that poses some other challenges, but you know, we just gotta go with what we have right now. And when you say property and you said uh, that means it's taxed like a stock, so that's kind of like, you know, you can have either long-term 
um, capital gains tax or short-term capital gains tax and, and that type of thing. Is that kind of correct? Yeah. I think that's an, that's an easy way for like beginners to think about crypto taxes, you know, just, just it's literally like stocks. Uh, there are some exceptions, uh, but just to kind of give an idea, you know, you have your purchase price, which we call in technical terms, a cost basis, and then you have a sales price. If there's a difference, you know, if it's a positive difference, you have a gain and that gain is subject to either long-term capital gains or short-term capital gains. Uh, the long-term capital gains occur when you sell your coin after holding it for more than 12 months. Uh, and then short-term capital gains occur if you were to sell your coin after holding it for less than 12 months. Um, so it's pretty similar to stocks, but there's one exception uh, for crypto. The wash sale rule does not apply because wash sale rule is only applicable for stocks and security under Section 1091. Uh, but yeah, that's but kind of thinking about stocks is kind of like an easier way to to approach crypto taxes in general. And just to um, flesh that out for people, when you say the wash sale rule does not apply, that means if they were to buy back the cryptocurrency after selling it within some time period, then um, so typically for stocks that wouldn't trigger a taxable event, but it does for crypto. Is that what you're saying? So the the wash sale rule means that uh, let's say a stock goes down in value uh, and then you're selling it and you're buying it back. If you do the buyback, within 30 days after you sell it, that loss is going to get disallowed by the IRS because the idea is that IRS doesn't want you to give any credit for paper losses. But that's only applicable to stocks and securities. In the crypto world, that's not applicable. But you, so that, what that means is you can literally, you know, if you have your positions like, you know, in the red, meaning your cost base is higher than your market value, you can sell them, harvest your losses, and quickly get back into the same position without having to wait that 30-day wash sale period. So it kind of allows you to aggressive, uh, aggressively harvest your tax losses, you know, compared to, to stocks. So that's actually one advantage. And I don't see people talking about this. They always focus on the bad side. Okay, why do we have to pay taxes? But if you plan things correctly, there are some unique advantages uh, if you deal with crypto. Okay, great. So in general, like what information should people be recording in order to be able to report correctly for their taxes? Um, I mean, I think a big misnomer is that you need to be tracking every single transaction and you need to be tracking your cost basis like yourself. So I think one thing like Zen Ledger and, and like a coin tracker provides is software that's able to do that for you. So one thing that we typically recommend for our customers or our clients is to really track the sources. So for example, I'm using a Coinbase, a Kraken, a Gemini. I'm using a Ledger, a Trezor, a MetaMask. So really by tracking what wallet addresses you're using, what exchange accounts you're using, platforms like the ones that we both provide allow you to simply integrate API keys, integrate CSVs, integrate wallet addresses. And then our software actually kind of does all the the in-between for you of calculating the cost basis, calculating your gains, your losses. So what we typically per, uh, recommend is just making sure that you're keeping track of what you're using, not necessarily, you don't have to have like uh, an Excel spreadsheet or a Google document or handwritten notes of every single trade or every single transaction, but just uh, making sure that you understand the sources that you're using um, and then making sure that you're uh, preferably using a, a crypto tax software. It, it, we definitely believe that it makes uh, your life a little bit easier and uh, makes it uh, really simple to get uh, your obligations taken care of. Just just to kind of give some contest to like, you know, people who are completely new to this, like if you go to trade your stocks and securities in like TD Ameritrade or JP Morgan, at the end of the year, you're going to get this form called 1099B listing cost basis, your market value and the gains and losses. 
after you get that, it's just a matter of plugging those numbers into your tax return and you're fine. But in the crypto world, it does not happen because of the, you know, the complexities associated with cost basis and et cetera. So that's where these, you know, crypto tech software tools come in handy. So you can connect your exchanges and wallets and those software can provide that cost basis and market value and gains and losses. Then you can include that on the return. So, uh, and without this software, and if you're using, you know, multiple exchanges and wallets, it's it's virtually impossible to you to kind of track those things. And sometimes, you know, you could even be all paying taxes for no reason. So highly recommend using any of these softwares. And actually, I just wanted to go back to, you know, that question about how, um, like, the very first question on the 1040 right now is about crypto. I was wondering, what is the penalty for someone if they either accidentally or even dishonestly report that they didn't have any such crypto transactions or didn't receive crypto during that year when in fact they did? I mean, there, there's no like major penalty, just an informational question. But you know, when you sign the return, you're signing the return under penalty and perjury. So you are expected to report things correctly. And if you're intentionally, you know, lying on that question, that could even be considered like fraud. So to give an answer, I mean, there's no like a monetary penalty. And if you get it wrong, you're going to get penal, you know, penalized for hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. You got to make, you got to get the question right. And again, that question, I, again, a lot of people are scared of that question and I, I, I wouldn't be scared of that. It's just an informational question and just answer it correctly. And if it's a yes, and the second question that you should be asking yourself is, do I have a taxable event or do I have other forms to file? Um, so, yeah. And then one other thing I was also curious about is there are all kinds of airdrops, but there are people who kind of, you know, are a bit active in crypto and then later are not active and, you know, whatever, like if they come in during some kind of bubble and then they drop out when uh, things are a bit quieter. So, if they receive an airdrop, but they don't know that they've received it, um, you know, and they don't report that, like, um, I mean, I guess you said there isn't a penalty, but, but it just feels like, like there could be a lot of instances where that would happen. Right. Yeah. I think that there could be instances. I mean, I think those, I mean, if you, you know, really forget to, you know, kind of look at your wallet to see if you receive any airdrop, uh, I would say that's like an innocent mistake. You know, not, you're not trying to intentionally defraud the government. Uh, again, that's another situation where, you know, some of these, you know, crypto tax software tool come in handy because if you're using one of them, uh, you can see the taxes at the end of the year and you're like, oh, I got an airdrop and luckily this software captured it. Now you know you have tax liability and now you know you got to answer that question correctly. All right. So let's now just walk through all the basic different types of transactions that can happen that can trigger taxable events. And, and let's talk about, you know, like what information you might want or, or um, need to record or, you know, what different factors in the transaction could affect what your taxes might be. So let's just start with the basic one. Someone buys crypto and then later they sell it. Walk me through what that looks like for, for them in terms of taxes. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, Jehan mentioned it earlier, just in the sense that, you know, once you purchase that, that currency, um, then you'll have that cost basis moving forward. So depending on how long you held that currency, uh, as, uh, as was mentioned, you know, if it's under 12 months, that'd be a short-term capital gain over 12 months, long-term capital gain. So one big, you know, factor is how long did you hold? Um, and then obviously did that asset go up or down before you sold it or 
traded it. And I think that's another element um, that, you know, maybe we'll get into later of, you know, buying uh, with dollars into fiat, crypto into crypto, and then crypto back into fiat are kind of like the three main buckets. Um, so anytime you go from one crypto to another, that would be a taxable event. And that would, you know, come with another set of cost bases, another set of gains and losses. But yeah, so the purchase question kind of just depends because I think a lot of individuals may not realize that um, purchasing crypto with another crypto is not actually a purchase, but a trade. And, you know, comes with another set of obligations that comes uh, separate than if you were just using um, dollars to purchase crypto. So there is kind of um, not gray area, but there's just a uh, there's some more context depending on how you purchase that. Uh, but typically from dollars into crypto, there'd be no taxable event on that. And then, you know, depending on how long you held that crypto under 12 months, over 12 months. And then at the end, if you sold that back in for another crypto or exited back into fiat, not only the amount that you held, the gains, losses, but then um, typically uh, some of your own personal information could be included in that as well, as far as your own tax rates and things like that. So there is some complexity to uh, to that question and some variables that kind of go into the overall purchase or, or sell of a, of a, a crypto asset. I guess just to kind of give everybody a summary, uh, again, for those of you who are brand new, remember these five situations. These are the five situations where you could owe some type of crypto taxes. So number one, as Dan mentioned, like, you know, you, you're pretty much cashing out. You, know, you got a Bitcoin for 10,000, you're selling it for 30,000, you got to pay taxes on 20 grand. That's pretty easy. Number two, when you go from one cryptocurrency to another, like you're spending Ethereum to buy Bitcoin. This is a situation that a lot of people don't get. Because they're like, you know, I didn't receive any cash. You know, why do I have to pay taxes? Unfortunately, IRS doesn't care whether you receive cash or not. As long as you have access to some type of wealth by moving from one coin to another, you got to pay taxes. So that's the second situation. And number three is when you earn crypto, you could be earning crypto through, you know, wages, you know, by working for somebody, it could be interest, it could be DeFi income, mining income, staking income. So those are taxable events. Number four is when you spend crypto to buy goods and services. You know, there's a bunch of crypto debits and credit cards. Some people think, oh, I'm just spending, you know, crypto. It's not taxable. It is taxable. So something to keep in mind. And lastly, airdrops and forks. Uh, in 2020, we saw a couple of major airdrops, the uni airdrops and the spark airdrops. So those are the situations where you, you have some coin, but you don't necessarily have cash to pay the taxes. So you got to make sure you withhold enough taxes or at least after you get the airdrop, you convert a portion of that airdrop to like a stable coin. So at the end of the year, you got enough cash in hand to pay the taxes. So those are the five situations I would, I would remember. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's a smart tip. One, one thing that I wanted to ask also, so in that case where you're purchasing with Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency, what if you've acquired the cryptocurrency at different times and then you kind of make a big purchase of something, you know, like, like let's say, so let's say it's like, you know, you received $20 of Bitcoin at one time and then, you know, a hundred dollars another time and $50 another time. And then you buy um, a plane ticket that's, you know, more than a hundred and uh, why <laughs> let's say it's close to 200 and you still have other Bitcoin. Then how do you determine the cost basis? Yeah, I mean, this is this is where you know you know tools like Zenledger and CoinTracker come in handy. Uh, so IRS is saying that if you can specifically identify the unit that you're deemed to be selling, meaning if you have all the detailed records of every cryptocurrency that you purchase with the date, with the unique identifier, and everything, 
for tax purposes, you can pick and choose which unit that you're selling. So in, the, in, in your example, uh, ideally, you want to be disposing the coin which you paid the highest amount for, thereby you know, reducing your gains. Um, so you can achieve the specific ID if you're using like a crypto tax tool, because if you're using a tool, you automatically keep all those records. But if you don't use a tool, it becomes on, it's your responsibility to track them on Excel spreadsheet or something. And in case you get audited, you got to prove this is how you achieve the cost basis for that specific transaction. Okay. Let's walk through a few other scenarios. So what about people who mine cryptocurrency? What do they need to do to keep, you know, to, uh, to report their taxes correctly? Yeah, happy to, to chime in. Um, I think it, it really just depends on how that mined currency is uh, received from a uh, corporation or an individual. So if you have an LLC set up and you're having a mining facility run through a business or a business entity, it's a little bit different than having an individual. So that's kind of a big um, difference. But at the end of the day, that mining income would be considered as taxable income for crypto tax purposes. So pretty much the same thing from um, from what you know what we've discussed earlier. When you receive uh, either that distribution from a pool that you may be operating with, or from you know maybe by, you know by a by luck you're able to, to get a you know get your own block and get your own block reward, that access and that transaction would be viewable on the on the blockchain. You'd be able to see the timestamp when it came in, the the value that is worth in USD value, and then treating that income would be just as taxable income. A lot of the times that we see, whether it's individuals or corporations a lot of that mining income or mining revenue is then used to fund future uh, business operations. So if you're converting that income back into dollars or using that income to then purchase, um, you know, a new ant miner, a new, um, you know, bit like a new uh, facility or things like that, then being able to track that is, is interesting as well. So I think um, we've seen that if you're mining cryptocurrency, a lot of the times it's better to even just set up a, a simple LLC and have that income come through the business versus a singular entity because um, you you have a little bit different tax rate as a corporation versus an individual. Um, Sheehan, I don't know if you had anything to add on that. Yeah, I think I think that that distinction is super important, like how you're going about you know at doing the mining operation because you could be mining as a hobbies, meaning you could have a couple of mining machines on your basement versus you could, you know, take investors' money and, and just mining as a business. If you're mining as a hobbies, you got to pick up the income, as Dan mentioned. The income is the market value every time you get those, you know, Bitcoin or whatever the coin that you're mining. And you would sum it up on an annual basis. That would be your income. If you're a hobbies, unfortunately, you cannot deduct your mining-related business expenses because it's considered a hobby under the IRS. Now, the second option is you're mining as a business. If that's the case, you pick up the income, you get to write off all the mining operation, um, like related expenses like rent, utilities, subscriptions, and also uh, equipment. Because these equipments, as you guys know, they're pretty expensive. And uh, luckily, the IRS code like allows you to, you know, uh, depreciate up like you know one million dollars worth of equipment under Section 179. And there's bonus depreciation and there's de minimis safe harbor rules, meaning if you have receipts and if, if something is below 2,500 bucks, you can just write it off. Like, you know, they don't even ask what it is for. Um, so it's, it's very beneficial. Like whenever you earn income by leveraging like equipment or like, you know, uh, like a capital intensive type of business, IRS has, you know, very favorable tax rules. So yeah, I mean, talk to a tax advisor about kind of structuring it. But the TLDR here is that if you properly run like a mining, especially proof of work mining business, you're 
actually making money, but you're not paying any taxes because you get the deduction from the depreciation, which is a non-cash outflow. So it's it's pretty beneficial uh, if you if you do it right. And one other thing is, so Dan kind of very quickly was just like, oh, when you mine it, you can get the price from any block explorer. So is that just how you determine the cost basis? Because as we know, um, the price of, you know, let's say it's Bitcoin can vary depending on what country you're in. Um, I mean, of course, I know we're talking about the U.S., but like still, um, like even recently, there was a kind of this question of what was the high that Bitcoin reached back in the 2017 bubble. Um, and it turned out, you know, if you look at coin market cap, because that's using sort of like a global reference, it's higher than U.S. exchanges. So, um, yeah, just for a miner, then would they have to kind of try to pick a U.S. price? You know what I mean? Or. Yeah, how, um, yeah. I mean, for, for us, we, we run full nodes as well. So I think that gives you a little bit more granular detail than using like a block explorer like blockchain.com or Bitcoin.com or a, a block explorer. So. Running a full node allows you to uh, essentially look at the exact timestamp, look at um, the exact uh, cost basis. Um, as you mentioned, even finding that USD value can vary depending on if it's listed on a Coinbase, a Binance, a Kraken. Um, you know, I think you've covered in some of your previous podcasts uh, some arbitrage opportunities back in 15 and 16 where, you know, US investors would buy on a US exchange and then sell in Asia and then get the, the arbitrage opportunity between the, the two listed prices. Um, so we've definitely seen that the price the price is not always consistent. Um, and it really just depends on kind of what you're using. Um, we use multiple price feeds. We run full nodes. So we have kind of a, a different um, ability than I'd say an individual. I, I imagine, you know, Cointracker is using the same types of, of technology. So I think as an individual, it's a little bit harder to figure out exactly what, um, what cost basis and, and what USD value you should use. But by running a full node, it gives you a little bit more granularity than just uh, using a, a block explorer, for example. Yeah, I mean, r- running a full node is a great option, and and all these you know crypto tech software like you know they they rely on these you know pricing data providers. So what these data providers do is they combine you know pricing from various sources, and they kind of you know clean up those you know bad you know bad actors and the bad prices. And you know we rely on the the market value coming from from those uh, you know uh, pricing data providers as well in, in conjunction with you know running your own nodes and directly getting the price feeds from the exchanges. And just so I'm clear, so on a node, it's not like you're going to get a USD price. It's more that you will know the exact moment of time. Is that what it is? And then you can use that against the index. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. I mean, the, for, for a node, it just gives you a little bit more granularity into the timestamp, into the amount, into the fees that were paid and things like that. You can still find that in a block explorer as well if you entered in the transaction hash or the address. Um, so it's not like it gives you um, completely different information, just a little bit more granular detail. Um, but as Xian mentioned, typically using like a pricing aggregator, uh, I mean, in my opinion, I think CoinGecko has kind of taken that, that top spot versus the coin market cap, especially recently, uh, um, especially after the acquisition. And we've seen some, um, gamifying of the data with coin market cap, uh, in the last like year or so. But I think CoinGecko has been a, a very trusted resource, um, that mm. we've seen. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that out for now, but, um, coin market cap, uh, and uh, and CoinGecko probably like the two biggest one. <laughs> there might be, there might be. Um, but CoinGecko is one that we think has done a really great job of, as Shian said, you know, pricing out or aggregating some of these additional price feeds, cleaning up the prices, and giving you kind of one universal price that you can use across uh, multiple exchanges. 
And then earlier we did reference, um, like if you earn crypto, so let's say some employer does pay you in crypto, then how would that be taxed? Yeah. So uh, there's two levels of taxation. There's taxes that employer has to take care of, and there's another level of taxation for the employee. Uh, for the employer, you got to pay your you know, typical payroll taxes and et cetera. So that's, that's a whole nother administrative burden on them. But there are, you know, major companies like Coinbase, and if you elect to do so, you can get paid in crypto. So it's pretty common. So that's the employer side of things. As an employee, if it's properly included on your W-2 or 1099 and in USD, that's, that's pretty easy. You just kind of plug that into the return and you're fine. But in most cases, like employers in this space are not super educated. You know, they're still new and they're, they're startups. Sometimes they just kind of, you know, send out like, you know, hey, here's some coins, here's some Bitcoins as your compensation. In that case, it becomes employee or the contractor's responsibility to have detailed records of every time you receive those coins, the value of those coins, and you got to sum it up and that should go on your taxes. So again, that's another situation where these crypto tax software tool could come in handy because as soon as you enter timestamp, it can convert the coins into USD and it just shows you what needs to be included on the tax return. And then what about, um, uh, I mean, I know this isn't super common, but it does happen. What about peer-to-peer transactions that don't involve an exchange, you know, something kind of like a local Bitcoins or Paxful? How do you handle that? For us specifically, it's a little bit trickier than using like a Coinbase or a Binance where you have an API key or a CSV set. Um, but one of the things that we offer, and, and I believe CoinTracker does as well, is the ability to have a, a custom CSV or a manual entry where you can actually manually enter in the specific data set. So if you're using like a BISC or a local Bitcoins or another provider that's more peer-to-peer, there's still an additional element of having to track that yourself and then enter that in. And that's kind of how we are looking at it right now. Um, because of the nature of the, uh, you know, I know sometimes the exchange is not even the best word or like decentralized exchange or um, for BISC, for example, there's not really like a company per- behind it. Um, so it gets a little tricky because there's not like a customer support person or like a tech team that, you know, will be able to provide you a transaction detail. So it just becomes a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more tricky for the average investor, but at the same time to be, you know, fully transparent, the average investor in crypto is, in my opinion, is not really using those services yet. They're typically going with a Coinbase, a Kraken, a, if they're US, a Gemini, a, one of those US-based exchanges that have a fiat on-ramp. And that's another differentiator, I think, as well, is most of these peer-to-peer exchanges don't give you the ability to go from dollars into crypto. And they're normally crypto to crypto. So you still have to use another fiat on-ramp to gain crypto. Let's say you, you know, $100 into Bitcoin, Bitcoin into your BISC account, you know, Bitcoin into whatever, you know, asset type you, you like. Um, so typically that's another distinction is, um, with a BISC or a local Bitcoins, you're not able to put dollars in and then trade with them. You're, you're having to deposit crypto in, then use that crypto. So there's a little bit more advanced, uh,ness, I guess, to using those platforms where the average new user, and I could be absolutely wrong, but the average new user is, is typically looking for a fiat on ramp. They're looking for, um, someone that can help custody and, and hold their coins for them. Um, and those uh, centralized providers really provide that in a, in a neat, easy to use most of the time in a mobile app. So I guess that, that's my perspective. But if you're using those, we and, and I believe CoinTracker does as well, still gives you the opportunity to manual enter um, those like singular or putting them into a CSV and then adding a, a complete CSV file in. So you can still account for that. It's just it adds an extra step or two. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk about some of the more obscure um, types of crypto transactions that 
may actually really appeal to my audience, such as, you know, yield farming and staking and validating and earning interest in all kinds of stuff. So, um, but first we're going to have a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Dan Hannum and Shehan Chandra Sekera. All right, so let's walk through some of these more obscure crypto events. Um, let's start with yield farming because that was quite the craziest last year. I'm sure this is going to make a lot of people's taxes a bit more complex this year. What information do they need and how do they ter- determine cost bases, et cetera? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I would say it's a, it's a mess. <laughs> uh, there's, there's so many layers of taxation for a typical yield farming, uh, type of transaction. Uh, so, so for those of you who don't know, like, you know, typically what happens is, you know, you buy a certain type of coin in a decent, you know, in an ERC-20 type of environment, and then you earn some type of governance token, and then you lend the governance token again on another platform, and you can just do it on a multiple layers. Um, it's like Russian nesting dolls or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and on the top of that, there are other platforms who kind of help you optimize your entire strategy. Again, it's a tax nightmare. Again, there, luckily, you know, there are tools that's going to kind of help you kind of figure out those, you know, either interest income, uh, you know, the PL based type of accounting, meaning like, you know, you have an entry price and exit price, and then the difference is a PL, the profit or loss, and then you pay taxes on that. So, uh, again, it's an emerging area. IRS probably doesn't even know that, 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 that this, this exists. Uh, but again, we just had to work with what we, what we have from 2014. So it's challenging. Uh, but, you know, there's enough guidance there to infer, uh, the, the right tax, uh, implications for those transactions. Which is what that, because like, for instance, so like if, so like with the sushi swap thing, when you start providing liquidity to Uniswap and then you receive the sushi, is the cost basis just whatever the sushi is trading at at that moment? Or like, how do you? So in the, in the case of Uniswap, like that's, that's, that's a whole different conversation, but usually the, the, the easy way to think about Uniswap is that, you know, you, you, you're providing liquidity and then you, you, then you close your position with your liquidity pool. If there's a difference, then you're going to get pay, you're going to pay taxes on the PNL, the profit and loss. So that's just a Uniswap, uh, you know, how, how I think it should be taxed. Although I know once you put the, uh, the coins into a liquidity pool that the ratio changes and it just doesn't make sense for anybody to track those ratio changes and treat them as individual sales. It just, it's just too much, too much work for no reason. Just speaking of yield farming, the generally, I mean, again, everybody's doing it a different way. Every platform is doing it a different way. Every time you earn something like a governance token or earn interest, that's treated as ordinary income. And that establishes the cost basis for that token. And then when you later sell it, you got to pay capital gain taxes on the difference between the cost basis and the sales price. Um, and then, you know, you do this multiple times and you just got to make sure that you track all of them. Okay. So the value for the sushi, you know, when, when they were doing that vampire mining on Uniswap would be just whatever it was trading for at that, like whatever the trading price was for sushi. Is that the that, cost that basis? Is, 
that 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 is correct. Again, it's not like you know direct tax guidance that has been issued by the IRS. This is how I think it should be treated in a more practical way because there's nobody to answer these questions except us. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's still a lot of gray area in the inference between what's written and and, and using other guidance to kind of uh, put together what we would recommend. Um, the good thing from a pure like accounting or tax perspective, as far as um, on the opposite side of you know once they're how are they taxed, but then how can you track this and how can you um, easily and accurately you know report this? Um, the good thing is because a lot of these uh, platforms, whether it's a Uniswap, Susie Swap, you know Maker Compound, you know. Uh, on down the list, most of the time you're interacting with a wallet address, whether that's a MetaMask or a, a MyTherm wallet or one of these other you know providers. Um, and the good thing with our software and, and I believe CoinTracker as well is you can just enter in that wallet address. <clears throat> so I know in our last uh, question, we had mentioned like entering in manual entries or entering custom CSVs for the average user or even for myself, like trying to do that with you know DeFi or yield farming or, or something like that would get pretty complex, but the good thing is you can enter in an address and then we'll pull in that transaction data directly from that address, where it went, you know, what pool you went into, what pool you came out of, things like that. So um, after you kind of sort through how it's taxed, um, on the opposite side, being able to report that accurately and concisely and getting that into your tax forms um, has become a little bit easier because you're getting the distributions out to a wallet address. Um, And then you can just enter that wallet address and we can see the activity in that address. And obviously, with a lot of the yield farming, people were making crazy amounts of interest for, um, you know, uh, allowing their tokens to be borrowed or, or whatever it was. So how does earning interest get taxed in uh, by the IRS? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, earning interest at the time you receive it, you, you just had to pay taxes based on the market value. Uh, that interest is, is taxed as ordinary income. Um, I Again, I know it sounds like interest, but technically speaking, it's it's not considered interest because for you to earn interest income, you got to put money uh, in, a, in a certain institution. So in this case, we are not dealing with money. Instead of money, we are putting property. So the technical, I would say it's more like other income, uh, but either way, the tax freedom is the same. Uh, you know, you just got to pay order income taxes at the time you receive it, equal to the market value at the time you receive it. Okay, so it depends on what your income bracket is, what amount you're going to pay. That's correct, yeah. And then you'd have a a separate form for that as well. Um, And I I think that may be a segment we'll get into as far as like, what are the tax forms? What are they used for? Um, But with like the Schedule 1, you'll have a listing of, of, you know, that income that comes in, which is separate than an 8949 or a Schedule D or some of these other tax forms that are kind of uh, more focused on um, a purchase or a sale of uh, of an asset versus uh, just the interest or income that comes in. Okay, so this is interesting because basically, so for people doing yield farming, if depending on the complexity of the transactions that they're doing, they could be paying capital gains taxes in addition to ordinary income taxes, even if it looks like kind of like a single cycle of yield farming. Is that right? So I, I actually wrote a post about this. In, in my opinion, when, it, when, when you say yield farming, it consists of like at least seven to eight transactions, meaning you're opening up a loan, you're getting interest, and then you're selling the second token to another one. So, And then all those different layers of transaction have different ways of getting taxed. And your entire tax bill depends on the summation of, of those eight, seven or eight transactions. So it's just really hard to say, okay, how should yield farming be taxed? It's hard to say because every platform is doing it a different way. And then that yield farming phenomena consists of different, like at least seven or eight 
transactions. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, super fun for you guys. And um, I'm sure the IRS is going to love this when they really get into it. Um, okay. So another new thing that, well, it's not really new, but you know, with Ethereum 2.0, it became a bigger thing uh, with staking or validating. How does that kind of activity get taxed? Okay. Uh, I'll start with Ethereum 2.0 because that's the big news because Ethereum is the second biggest uh, currency with the market cap. Um, so again, we, we still don't know how it's going to look like in the real world because I hear like, you know, some exchanges are providing like some type of liquidity token while your original, uh, I don't know, 20 or 32 Ethereum uh, are being locked in the Ethereum 2, like, you know, smart contract. So again, I, you know, I actually explained this on my Twitter as well. It just, we can speculate how it's going to look like, but we just don't know how exactly going to play, how, how exactly this will play out in the real world. But generally speaking about staking, like something like Tezos, like you got to, you know, the conservative way to treat is that at the time you receive those staking rewards, you had to pay order income taxes uh, based on your income tax bracket. So that's the most conservative way to go about that. All right. Yeah. No, that is true because, um, there are different ways to stake. And I did do an episode with, um, James Slazis of Dharma Capital because they launched liquid staking, I think is the name of the company. And yeah, I do think they're giving people tokens because I think you can do like a fraction rather than the full 32 ETH as your deposit. So, okay. Interesting. All right. So we briefly did talk about airdrops, but why don't we? go through that um, in terms of, uh, you know, what people need to uh, know and, and report for their taxes? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we covered some of it in the sense that uh, a, t- a traditional airdrop would just be taxable ordinary income from the income that comes in from that airdrop. Most of the time, especially with an airdrop, a lot of the times, um, especially like maybe hardcore Bitcoin users that have been around for a few years, whether it's BSV or BCH or some of these, you know, there's like a hundred different Bitcoin forks. A lot of times they'll not want to keep the fork and they'll actually trade that fork right back in for additional Bitcoin. So there's, it kind of just depends on what you do with that airdrop, what you do with that fork. Um, and then with the airdrop, you know, we went through kind of how you could track that, how you could report that. I think Chian mentioned like the uni airdrop or like the one inch airdrop. Those were kind of uh, pretty large airdrops this year where it kind of depended on how many addresses you use to interact with the protocol. So with Uniswap, you could actually have 100, 200, 300 different wall addresses that all interacted and all received an airdrop. Um, so, you know, it becomes a little uh, little complex, but, you know, using software like either of ours really allows you to kind of simplify that process. Um, so the the income that you'd receive from the, the airdrop would just be included among other income, whether that's mining, um, whether that's staking, whether that's, um, you know, interest or, you know, quote unquote interest. Um, and then what you do with that asset moving forward, if you keep that asset, then you go into that holding period. If you trade that asset in, same thing, holding period, gains, losses. So um, there's kind of a duality, not, not necessarily there's a double tax, but there's just multiple factors of once you receive that airdrop, what you do with it. Um, but the airdrop itself uh, would largely be uh, considered uh, taxable income that comes in. And then, you know, as we mentioned, uh, figuring out what the USD value was of that airdrop when you received it. And then we've seen some, you know, as Xi'an mentioned, and I think anyone that kind of lives in this space there's a lot of gray area and a lot of lack of guidance around an airdrop and, and when do you actually own that airdrop. So do you own that airdrop when it hits your wallet? Does it, do you own that airdrop when you actually, you know, claim that token? Do you use that airdrop when you actually move that token? So there's a lot of um, gray area in the sense that 
we really just haven't had clear guidance directly from the IRS. So, you know, firms like ours, our tax attorneys, Sheehan, Cointracker, you know, other platforms in the space um, try to typically recommend more of a conservative approach. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you are putting your names on these tax forms. Um, so, you know, you have a little bit of um, of optionality of what to do, but we typically recommend taking a conservative approach and then listing that income along with any other income that, that you're getting from uh, your crypto asset activity. Yeah. And one other factor with the airdrop and also the fork would be when, like, if you have those coins on an exchange, when that exchange makes those coins available to you. Because as we all remember from, you know, when Bitcoin forked into Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin, um, there, I think there were several exchanges, Coinbase probably being the most famous one where people could not access their Bitcoin Cash until four months later or more than four months later. So, um, I guess that would then affect your cost basis, right? Because it, like if the price at the time of the fork is different from the time, it, it, from the price at the time that you receive it on the exchange, then you would have a different cost basis. Yeah, correct. So I think the concept that we are talking about here is called dominion and control. So Iris actually came out with the guidance in 2019, uh, 2019-24 revenue ruling. So Iris pretty much said that you have a taxable event at the time you gain dominion and control of the coins that you get. So it's not the time you claim it because the claiming doesn't mean that you can you have actually control over it. It's the time that you see your coins on the wallet and you have the ability to do whatever you want with that. On that specific time, that's when you have a taxable event and you got to report the order income equal to the market value at the time you gain the dominion and, and control. Okay. And I just had a realization because this has happened to me. Um, let's say that you have some coins in some kind of wallet and those, that wallet receives an airdrop or whatever it might be, but then you cannot access that wallet anymore. Do you still owe taxes on that money? <laughs> this totally happened to me, by the way. I lost, I lost a fair amount of ether. Um, but anyway. Oh, sad story. <laughs> that, I, I was trying to buy my .ens name because I knew there were like squatters after it and um, miserably fails. But anyway, <laughs> that, that's it. That's a good question. Again, I, I would answer that question using logic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously at the time you that 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 coins hit your wallet, you have a taxable event. But if you could prove that, OK, you no longer have c- uh, control over that wallet. Uh, you know, you don't have the private keys. I, I don't think you should recognize income. It just it just doesn't make any sense because you don't have the dominion. You you had the dominion, but you don't have the control over that wallet because you just don't have access to it. So I would not record it. But at the same time, I would not claim a loss because that might raise a red flag to the IRS. So it just just disregarded. And I know it's sad, but what can we do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then. Um... So we, I think we went through pretty much all the major transactions that people uh, will, you know, be interested in. Um, there might be some others that I didn't think of, but I, th- I think that's pretty comprehensive. But then there are actually certain uh, things that people might do with their crypto that they don't need to report or that wouldn't be taxed. So what are some examples of those? I mean, honestly, at this point, with the, the treatment of it as property, there's really not that many that, that don't come under some sort of tax. I think the clear one is using dollars to purchase crypto. Um, so if you go in and, you know, into an exchange and you put in a hundred bucks and buy Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, 
um, that itself is not a taxable event. But then, you know, tracking that cost basis and, and figuring out what you did with that token moving forward would be. So I think that's a, a clear one is the purchase of crypto with uh, with fiat or using dollars um, to purchase crypto is is one that's not necessarily a taxable event, um, but would likely need to be, you know, tracked depending on what you do. As far as other ones, I mean, there, there's not really that many as far as, you know, anytime you make a trade, uh, you know, as we walk through, there's kind of a misconception of using uh, crypto and purchasing another crypto that that should be considered a purchase. Um, but as the treatment of property, you're essentially selling one piece of property and acquiring another piece of property. So that crypto to crypto transaction typically covers, you know, 95% of all activity, whether it's, um, you know, some type of yield farming, some type of just trading um you know, then we get into margin trading, futures, options, derivatives, and, and those all have taxable events. So pretty, unfortunately, for the U.S.-based taxpayer, that there is not that many buckets or types of transactions that aren't taxable in some regard. Um, but I don't know if she had any, that like didn't, that didn't come to mind for me. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you two more examples uh, in addition to what Dan mentioned, um, because this is a question that I get all the time. Transfers between exchanges and wallets that you own are not taxable. It doesn't matter, you know, your portfolio is worth a million bucks or 10 million bucks. If you're transferring from Coinbase, which you own, to another exchange of wallet that you own, it's not taxable. So that's 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 an, that's a second one. The third one is uh, if you're receiving a gift or if you're sending out a gift, uh, those are not reportable transactions because if I'm receiving like a gift, that's, that's not income. Of course, you would say yes to that crypto question on page 1040, but there's no tax obligation. So, so I would say those are the other two situations that you could have something to do with crypto, but there's, there's no taxes. I was going to say just to, to add on to that, not necessarily with another aspect, but I think what we got, especially back in, in 2017 or 2018, was some users that were like, why do I need to upload my wallet addresses? There's no taxable events. All I'm doing is transferring back and forth. But seeing that transfer allows us to then probably attract that cost basis between exchanges, between wallets, between protocols, so that when you make that purchase, we can see what lot or depending if you're using FIFO, LIFO, HIFO or specific ID, where that came from. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there as well, because I think we get a lot of questions. I imagine Cointracker does as well of why do you need to see my wallets? There's no taxable events that are occurring in the wallet specifically um, if you're just transferring back and forth. But seeing those transfers allows us to have a complete flow of funds that we can look at and then be able to track cost basis according to your transaction flow. So I just wanted to add that in because it's, it's definitely a frequent question uh, that we see uh, a lot. Yeah. And for people who don't know that LIFO, FIFO, whatever, is just last in, first out, first in, first out, which um, is are different ways to determine cost basis for your um, taxes. But as they were saying earlier in the episode, specific ideas even better because then you can really do the tax loss harvesting really well. Um, okay. And one other thing is what about stablecoin purchases or transactions? How are those taxed or, or do they even need to be, you know, reported or, or whatever? I mean, the purchases using USD for stable coins, it's not taxable. Are there are some t- stable coins, you know, they're, you know, they're theoretically they're pegged like, you know, to USD one to one, but there's some minor fluctuations, sometimes 0.99, 1.01. I mean, unfortunately, like if you want to be really conservative, you know, those are like taxable events, you know, for those, you know, point one or, you know, minus point one or plus point one. But on an annual basis, like if you're constantly transacting with stable coins, those, those fluctuations kind of, kind of evens up. Um, so that's my take on that. Okay. Okay. So yeah, like maybe just in case you'd want to do it, but it's not going to have a huge material impact. Exactly. All right. So then let's, because, you know, we've been talking about some of the 
kind of different forms and this issue with the wallets versus the exchanges. But I am curious, what are exchanges typically doing in terms of the types of forms they're sending out? Um, I do know, I actually like looked myself and it doesn't appear that there's kind of like a, a general um, standard for the way people are doing it because Cash App sends a 1099B and Coinbase sends a 1099MISC. So what are all the different forms that people might receive and how would that affect like, you know, what they would do with their taxes? Yeah, I mean, the simple answer is what are exchanges doing? Not enough. Um, you know, it's been an issue for quite some time and we haven't seen much precedence. Even, you know, an example is Coinbase was actually sued by the IRS um, for transaction data for customer records and still has not really given much uh, thought or effort to having a robust solution. So from an exchange perspective or even a service provider perspective, we haven't really seen much attention or much care for um, for the individual taxpayers. It's, you know, it's make sure you come in, make sure you pay your trading fees and then, you know, good luck on the back end. So we're now starting to see more exchanges, especially this year with the movement of the 1040 and, and increased IRS enforcement, not only from enforcement, but investment um, that exchanges and service providers are really starting to care more about how do we serve our customers on the back end. Um, as far as the forms, I think, you know, uh, we both kind of smirked a little bit when we heard the 1099B or 1099K or 1099 miscellaneous because we've seen multiple forms that really don't provide a comprehensive report. Now, as she had mentioned earlier, if you're using like a TD Ameritrade or an E-Trade, typically an investor is using one platform and all that activity is happening on that platform. So, you know, I come into Schwab and I put in a hundred bucks and I make some trades. And then at the end of the year, I have my, my 1099 and then I'm pretty much done. With crypto, the average investor that we've seen with our data set is using anywhere between six to 10 different exchanges. Then they're using anywhere between 10 to 15 different wallets. So, and that's an average user. You know, we have some users that are using hundreds of different exchanges, hundreds <laughs> of different wallets. They're making hundreds of thousands, not millions of transactions every year. They have automated bots. Like you can get pretty, uh, pretty crazy with it. But, but yeah, I mean, I think the value of, and not, not to shill either of our platforms too hard, but I think the value of our platforms is we've kind of gone in and do a lot of the, the grunt work for our customers and our clients. Instead of having to put together a, a spreadsheet from Binance and Coinbase and Gemini and Kraken and all these other things, we allow you to aggregate all your exchange activity, all your wallet activity. We do all kind of the, the messy hard work for you and then spit out these nice clean tax forms that you can either file yourself, you know, send your tax professional. I believe we both have like TurboTax integrations where you can, you know, do one click and drag and drop right into TurboTax and, and be done. So, um, yeah, we, we've definitely seen exchanges and service providers not really care too much just yet. Um, we're starting to see that from a partnership perspective um, as well, where exchanges are now looking for uh, both of our platforms to help them handle their clients. Um, you mentioned like staking platforms before. We've seen like Slingshot or Staked or some of these other platforms that are understanding that what they're doing on the platform has a taxable event. Same thing with like a Lolly, a Fold. Like these other providers are now starting to realize that if they can provide easy to use and accurate tax software for their clients, it just it makes it a, an en more enjoyable experience. So not to get on a, too much of a tangent there, but I think we're starting to see exchanges care. Our platforms and our softwares really do a lot of the, the dirty work for you of aggregating all of that. And I think that's where the complexity of crypto comes from is that you're trading on five or 10 different venues. You're trading between 10 or 20 different blockchains that all have different, um, you know, different ways to view them. You're trading between different wallets and things like that. So the, the more complexity you have, the more you typically need to use a software like, like one of ours. Um, but that's just, you know, my opinion um, and my perspective. But um, on, the, on the 1099K and 1099B, it really doesn't give the 
taxpayer, unless the taxpayer is just using Coinbase. Like if you sign in, all you do is put dollars in Coinbase, you make your trades just on Coinbase, you do nothing else, then th there's some ability to say those tax forms are useful. But the vast majority of people in crypto are not using one exchange. They're not using one wallet. They're using multiple. And when you start mixing wallets, you start mixing blockchains, the ability to track your cost bases accurately, reliably, and quickly becomes a little bit harder. And then that's where our software kind of comes in to help uh, help that process for our clients. So you're essentially saying like these forms are old. They you know are from kind of the time before crypto. And so none of them is really perfect for reporting crypto. And so that's why we're not seeing the exchanges kind of like pick one form to send. And then it sounds like you're also saying that even like for you, this provider in, in this space, like you're not really using the forms. Is that what I'm getting? I mean, pretty much. I mean, for us, like even... So let me let me tell you that like the fundamental problem that we are having in the crypto space, right? So if you're dealing with TD Ameritrade or JP Morgan, it's easy for them to internally track the basis because of the nature of the space. And if I'm moving stocks from TD Ameritrade to JP Morgan, they communicate with each other. So when I get the 1099B from JP Morgan, they know my cost basis. But in the crypto space, if I transfer my coins from my ledger to Coinbase, I cannot expect Coinbase to know right. my cost basis. Right. This is the problem. And this is the, the reason why we don't have uniformity when it comes to information reporting. And, and it's not the exchanges for it, just the space. Uh, and that's why we need tools like, you know, Cointrack and Zenledger, because we are those third-party intermediaries that aggregates all those sources and give the taxpayer what they need. And we are the only people who can do that because we are in the middle. Exchanges cannot do that. Taxpayers cannot do that. It's too complicated. It has to be that intermediary. So that, that that's why these crypto tax software are super important. Right. Because you would have visibility, not just to know what happens on the exchange, but even what happens in their ledger or their MetaMask or what. Okay. Got exactly. it. All right. So yeah, I was going to ask you a question about, you know, if someone is just using MetaMask or Ledger or whatever, what they would need to do. But it sounds like really it's just that they need to plug into some kind of crypto tax software. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about one other new trend that it's not really involving money, but it is a kind of crypto transaction, which is NFTs um, became kind of, you know, a little bit of a thing this year. And, uh, you know, by NFTs, we're talking about non-fungible tokens, which are sales of, you know, digital art or collectibles. So um, I, I don't, you know, I don't really know how this is taxed, but I, my questions are divided into like taxes from the purchaser's side. So why don't we just start there? So if I'm like, if I'm collecting some kind of digital art, then what, what do I need to report or log or, you know, do I pay taxes on that or? Yeah. NFTs is definitely like a new trend in crypto that we're seeing. I think one of the benefits and one of the disadvantages is the fact that they're based on different ERC standards, most of them. So for example, with a lot of traditional crypto, they're based on ERC-20, TRC-10, TRC-20, BEP-2. And those are really like common standards that things can be built off of. So if you look at like the crypto ecosystem, you know, 5,000 of the 10,000 tokens are some form of ERC-20. So in, in NFTs, you have ERC-721 and 1155, which are the two main like token standards that can be built off of. The good thing as what the, the NFT or non-fungible token stands for is that you're not swapping these as like, for example, dollars, which you can swap $1 for $1 and it's the same thing. You're buying a, a specific and rare um, and, and unique form of, of property. Um, and the ability to track that is somewhat easy because, you know, most of the things are happening on chain. So you can see 
you know, most of these platforms are using um, DAI or ETH or some type of crypto to purchase that transaction. If you go on like an OpenSea or a super rare or a rareable uh, NFT platforms, um, you're not really able to go in and with like a, a credit card and, and purchase an NFT. You're using ETH or DAI or, or um, some type of crypto. So seeing what you paid for it, seeing when you paid for it, seeing what, you know, that acquisition, that cost base is, is pretty easy. On the flip side, we're just not really seeing the velocity of those NFTs like we are with crypto. So we're not seeing an, an ERC-20 token or ETH or DAI being traded back and forth a million times. We're typically seeing in the concept of a lot of NFTs are based on like art, for example. So uh, a, a user that's purchasing a piece of art, they're not really reselling that every day or trading that material. They may, you know, sell it later on. For example, you know, we saw the CryptoPunk sale this I know we weren't supposed to use dates, but uh, within the last couple of weeks, that went for, you know, $700,000. Um, so we're seeing large purchases of NFTs, not only on the art side, but digital, digital music, digital content, digital um, creative uh, assets as well. So we're starting to see the mixture of um, culture and currency come together, which I'm personally really excited about. But as far as tracking it from a tax perspective, it's somewhat similar in the sense that you're still going to have a cost basis when you purchase that asset whether there's not really much you can do with the asset yet. And I think that's the interesting part of NFTs is how do we make these things uh, viewable? Like, do you put it on Decentraland or, or Somnium space? Can you put it into like a digital art museum and have people pay like a fee to view it like you would with like the Louvre or like a museum of natural art or something like that. Um, but to not, not to get too much on a tangent there. Um, the tracking of the purchase is, is pretty standard. And then because the, the asset is typically a 721 or 1155, being able to track where that asset went, it is pretty, pretty easy. And then if you sell that back into ETH or DAI or USDC or, or whatever, then you'd have a similar, um, similar accounting method, just like you would with a uh, traditional uh, crypto where, you know, cost basis, how long did you hold it? What did you sell it for? And things like that. So, um, it does become similar because a lot of times you're not able to purchase with dollars and then you're not able to sell that back into dollars. So even like the crypto punk reference I just brought up, that wasn't a sale into dollars. That was, you know, uh, crypto is used to purchase that asset from someone who paid crypto to purchase it originally, if that makes sense. So because it's still kind of in that crypto ecosystem and not hitting these fiat rails, um, you're not seeing some of the complexity that could come with the accounting. So I know that's a little bit of a tangent there, but uh, hopefully that gives a little bit of kind of clarity and context to uh, NFTs. Okay. And then I'm assuming for the creator, their income from that is just taxed as normal, ordinary income? Yeah. I mean, if, if you're in the business of creating art, I mean, yeah, it's just like getting paid in USD instead you're getting paid in some type of coin. So, um, yeah. Okay. And then I don't know if this is different or if it's... Um, you know, similar, but what about the people that are creating their own social tokens? Like there's Alex Masmich who created Alex and then Marguerite de Carcel created coin because they're kind of like creating their own sort of money or economy. <laughs> so I'm not sure how they, uh, how they um, handle their taxes for that. I mean, typically like creation of something is, is not a taxable event. I think the question arises you know when that person decides to sell it for like some amount of like huge money uh in that case you know most likely the difference you know the the cost basis and the sales proceeds will be taxed as some type of capital gain so i haven't i haven't seen like you know a lot of people uh, it's it's not that prevalent yet but i'm pretty sure as we move forward you know we're going to see so many of these great transactions and there's always going to be a lag behind the, the innovation and the IRS coming and telling the specific guidance so 
in that case, you know, we just had to come up with the reasonable guidance based on on what we know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like their, their fans are earning the coin by doing different things in their, you know, economy. And then, and then later there's a, there's maybe a price attached. So we're, we're over an hour, but we still have a few important questions. Um, during the DeFi craze this past summer, gas fees on Ethereum were quite high. And in general, you know, high transaction fees have been an issue for quite a while on several different blockchains. So um, how do those fees that people pay affect their taxes? Yeah, I mean, if you trade the gas fees correctly, you could get tax benefits. Um, like say that you're transferring, you know, uh, Ethereum from one wallet to another. Uh, you could add the gas fees to the basis. So when you later sell that coin, you would have a lesser gain because you're kind of getting the benefit of paying for that gas fee. And if you're selling in a transaction, you could reduce the sales price uh, with, the, with the gas fee. So that, that way you're kind of reducing that. So again, as long as you're kind of reporting those things correctly and capturing those correctly, uh, you can get some type of tax benefits. And again, that's where the crypto tax software coming to play because and there's no way that you can do these things manually. All right. And then at the end of the year, there may have been some people who made crypto donations because most likely over the course of 2020, people did see their crypto holdings go up. So how should those donations be handled tax-wise? Yeah, I think donations are a great tool for you to reduce your taxable income. And, and it's just one of those situations, like rare situations where IRS kind of gives you two benefits uh, in one transaction. So number one, like when you donate like long-term coins to a charity, you get to bypass the capital gain taxes. So that's that's huge. Number two, you get the deduction equivalent to the market value at the time you send the coin to the charity. And that deduction reduces your crypto income and also like non-crypto income, like W-2 business income, et cetera. So yeah, it's it's good. Uh, but I wouldn't make the charitable donation decision based on the taxes. I mean, you should have, you should be motivated by other things, but it, it, there's a generally good, uh, it's a good way to reduce your taxable income, generally speaking. Yeah. All right. And um, so there's also kind of, you know, two really popular platforms for purchasing cryptocurrency that actually don't do something that some of these other exchanges that we were discussing allow, which is they don't allow people to withdraw their crypto to their own wallets. And so that means all they can do if they um, would like to dispose of it or not dispose of it, but, you know, I guess gain control of those coins is they would have to sell it within the app. So how would that affect their taxes? And what I'm talking about is PayPal and Robinhood here, if I didn't mention them. <laughs> yeah, th this is a great timely topic, um, especially with, with, with Robinhood. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think... The problem with Robinhood and PayPal is that right now you cannot transfer out your crypto coins from, from those platforms to somewhere else. So for any reason, if you want to kind of completely move out of the platform, you're left with one option. That one option is you got to cash out your crypto, get the cash and go to somewhere like Coinbase and buy your crypto. But the problem here is that when you cash out, you got to pay taxes. So that's pretty unfortunate. Uh, because people should have the ability to move to another platform without having to pay taxes. But these these platforms, they just work in a way that if you want to move on, you got to cash out. Uh, again, that's the downside. I mean, but don't get me wrong. There's so much you know good things that are offered by these platforms as well. I mean, especially Robinhood, it, it, it brought like a bunch of, you know, retail 
millennial investors to to finance and expose them to crypto. So there's good stuff, uh, but there's bad stuff as well. Um, so for years, the crypto industry has been advocating for certain changes to the way crypto is taxed. In particular, they would like to see what's called a de minimis exemption for crypto transactions, which means that under a certain dollar amount, crypto transactions would not be taxed. So that, you know, would enable you to buy a cup of coffee with, with Bitcoin without triggering a taxable event. What do you think the prospects are now for something like that to go through? Yeah. Okay. So, so this bill was introduced, uh, I think 2019 or something like that. And then there was this, you know, there was COVID happened and there's a change in new administration. So I, I don't even know where this bill is right now, but, uh, so, but for those of you who don't know, like tip, it pretty much said that if you're, if you're transacting under 600 bucks or less, it's not a taxable event. So, so that's the bill. I mean, it's, it's good for the adoption, but at the same time, the way that Bitcoin has been, you know, soaring over the past few years, like for me, it works more like a, you know, investment tool or a capital asset. I would, I don't see people spending it to, to buy, you know, a cup of coffee or stuff like that, because I don't think it's designed to work as a currency, in my opinion. Well, no, I was just about to say, I think that the nice thing about the de minimis was just the sense that, and I may be wrong, but I don't think it was specifically just around Bitcoin. So I, I'm, a hundred percent on board with Shihan and like, I yeah. wouldn't use my own Bitcoin personally to, to purchase, you know, Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or anything like that. But I think, you know, if you have another asset that is currently used more as a medium exchange, I mean, I personally believe that, you know, as we continue to see a price increase and stabilize in Bitcoin, we'll eventually get to kind of different uh, aspects of money that it's used for. We're kind of still in that store of value uh, range right now. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think that's the nice thing is that it's not just for Bitcoin. So if you have other assets that, you, you prefer to use like, uh, you know, a Tron or something like that, where, you know, there, there may be a, a, a higher supply where you can easily purchase more at, a, you know, roughly the same cost, then it kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, I don't think there's been much like new news. And I think under the new Biden administration, it's kind of a wait and see with what Biden yelling and, and you know, some of the new uh, appointments, uh, where they go, where they start and how that kind of all plays out. Yeah, there was one other potential change that FinCEN flagged, which is um, the agency released a notice saying it intended to amend regulations so that so-called FBAR or foreign bank and financial account requirements are applied to crypto held overseas. So what what does that mean? What does that mean for crypto holders? Yeah, so so right now, if you're holding crypto in a, in a foreign exchange or a location, it's not subject to FBAR reporting. Uh, FBAR is like a, like a form that you file with the FinCEN whenever you have uh, any type of assets exceeding $10,000 in, 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 in any time during the period. So to be like super clear here, it's not applicable right now. The FBAR is not applicable to crypto right now. But in January, the FinCEN released like a very brief note, I think 2020-02 or something like that, saying that they intend to change that. Uh, again, that's that's all they said. Um, so if, if, if they release that, if they pass that law, if you're holding crypto in, let's say something like Binance.com and at any time during the year, it exceeded 10,000 bucks, you would have to disclose it. It does not mean that you got to pay taxes or anything like that. You just have to disclose it under the Bank Secrecy Act. All right. So why don't we end on tips for 2021? 
because I think we can all feel in our bones that 2021 is going to be a big year for crypto. (laughs) So what are your tips for people to establish habits that would help them um, now, uh, so or not to establish now so that a year from now they can breeze through their taxes? Okay, so just know that IRAs pretty much publicly said that they are going from this educational mode to more like enforcement type of mode, you know, starting 2021. So just, I would say just stop playing, you know, you know, games and just, just report your gains for crypto. Um, and then, you know, just make sure you answer your questions correctly. Uh, just, just be aware of how crypto taxes work. Just know like little things like, you know, selling your long-term crypto is always beneficial. Um, you know, do taxes harvesting, make sure you donate crypto if you have gained, you know, big amount of, you know, uh, unrealized gains. Uh, and then, you know, last but not least, you know, make sure you use some type of crypto tax software because that's the only way you're going to know your right amount of gains and losses. And if you don't use one of those things, you're going to be all paying taxes or you're going to be understating your income and you're going to expose yourself to the IRS. So those are my points. Dan, what about you? No, but I think he gave a, a great summary. I mean, we've seen personally with, with our new 2021 uh, customers that are coming in for likely 2021 tax season, they're purchasing on average 3.8 years worth of tax forms. So we're seeing a ton of increased adoption from a compliance perspective where they're coming back and either amending 17, 18, 19, 20. They may have never filed for those years and they're now filing for the first time. So we're seeing a lot of increased adoption, not only from the movement of the 1040 question, but We've also seen the IRS civil and criminal divisions um, now uh, with um, investments into crypto tax software and, and uh, blockchain analytics services to now be able to go out and, and use those softwares for enforcement. So we're seeing not only like the uh, increased compliance on the front end, but increased enforcement on the back end. I think Xi'an mentioned, you know, the tax loss harvesting is a huge ability um, to really offset your gains. And the, the um, cool thing is that it can be used for crypto and non-crypto as well. So, you know, if you have W-2 income, if you have stocks, bonds, those types of things, donations is a big one. And then, you know, as we mentioned earlier, just keeping track of what you're using, I think, is the biggest one. You know, Xi'an mentioned using a crypto tax provider. Um, you know, I, I strongly believe in, in both of our companies. You know, we've raised venture capital. We've, you know, we have built solid teams, solid product, been around for, for quite some time. So using a, a crypto tax uh, software is definitely a great tool. And then just making sure you're keeping track of what you're using. You know, as we started the conversation with... Um, you don't have to track every transaction or anything like that. Gas fees can be included in, in those wallet addresses, uh, wallet addresses, as we mentioned. So just really making sure you're tracking what you're using and then using a crypto tax uh, software is really uh, kind of like the uh, the bow on the end, I guess. All right. Great. Well, thank you for helping me um, give listeners a very comprehensive show. Where can people learn more about each of you and Zen Ledger and CoinTracker and crypto taxes in general? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at the crypto CPA, so it's pretty easy to find. Uh, if you need a crypto tax software tool, you know, you can go to cointracker.io or you can go to Coinbase Tax Center. We are directly integrated there as well. So, yeah. Yeah, as she had mentioned, my yeah. uh, my handle is not as uh, as nice. My handle is just uh, dhanum, D-H-A-N-N-U-M-8. Pretty active on Twitter. Um, you know, our, our website is just zenledger.io. And I think one thing that may be interesting to some of your listeners as well that may have outside crypto activity is in addition to our do-it-yourself options, we also have fully prepared tax professional plans. So we have a team of tax professionals standing by that can help you with your crypto and non-crypto activity. So if you just want someone to do it for you, sign off on it. And I think that's a big thing. We're seeing a lot of users that 
Um, they want to make sure if the IRS comes knocking, they're knocking on the tax professional door and not their door. So just another thing that may be interesting for some of your viewers that may have um, activity outside of crypto that just are looking for someone who can handle both. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Dan and Zen Ledger and Shihan and Cointracker, as well as crypto taxes, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.